Hi, I'm Shreya Bakliwal and this is Women Who Build Podcast. Hi Abhilasha, I'm so happy that we are finally doing this. When I first saw your profile, I thought that there will be so many learnings from your journey since you've pursued different types of roles in different industries. And I actually resonate a lot with your journey because I've gone through a similar one of working across sectors. So thank you so much for doing this with me. Thanks for having me, Shreya. This is a big fan of what you're doing and excited to be a part of it today. Thank you. Abhilasha, I would love for you to walk us through your journey from Avanti to now at Open Secret. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I think I was very fortunate that I got into uh, HPS 2 plus 2, which is the early admit program in my final year of college. And this was uh, when I was in my fourth year at IIT Delhi. And the reason I call myself lucky is because I was quite a risk averse person. And without that safety blanket of an early admit, I wouldn't have made many decisions, uh, which made my life significantly better and have brought me where I am today. So I, you know, after getting the admit, I um, stepped out away from the more traditional consulting job I had post IID and instead joined this social enterprise called Avanti Learning Centers which was, you know, and I spent three great years there where we were really working on hybrid educational models where you use the best of tech and peer-to-peer learning uh, to make science and math education um, accessible in, you know, very diverse parts of the country and also to a wider socioeconomic um, range. And uh, I honestly, anybody who knew me in college would never have guessed that I would have made such a decision because, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I was pretty risk averse. But it was like very transformational for me those three years because it really gave me the opportunity to be a step out of my comfort zone. I was, you know, managing like a 10, 20 member team when I was just 24, 25 I had done everything from, you know, curriculum to uh, product to direct teaching to running, uh, you know, partnerships with uh, governments as well as, you know, different sort of uh, uh, public sector undertaking uh, organizations in remote parts of the country. It also helped me personally break out of my bubble of somebody who had grown up mostly in Delhi. So, um, you know, really opened me up to a world beyond a uh, you know, a relatively sheltered existence that I'd had. So which part so, of India um, were you in? Uh, were you working out of Delhi or where was your work centered mostly at Avanti? So I was based I was based out of Delhi, okay. but like, you know, and we ran a bunch of centers in Delhi. But so in Delhi, uh, my work was in places like Shahadra, Silampur, mm. uh, Subhashnagar. Um, this is both East and West Delhi. And then I did a bunch of work across, you know, different parts of the country like Kanpur, um, did a bunch of work, some work in Madhya Pradesh in a small town called Ragogar, had helped set up things that we were doing in Bihar, close to Patna, and had also helped the team set up our, you know, first program in Jammu and Kashmir, in um, Kupwara, which is closer to the the border. And uh, all of these were very, even, you know, even the experiences in Delhi was very different from my 
sort of experience of Delhi where I had grown up. Yeah. Um, I grew up in South Delhi. Uh, Delhi for me ended at CP. Hmm. And uh, the joke was that our work beyond began beyond CP. Yeah. So <laughs> it was, um, you know, I rediscovered my city in a very different light. And of course, did a ton of work in other parts of the country, including also, you know, had done a bunch of work in Mumbai as well. So um, saw the city, so saw my own city with different light. And uh, of course, got to see a large parts of the rest of the country as well. What did you do after Vanti? So I was, uh, like I mentioned, I had uh, the 2 plus 2 admit. I'd actually deferred by my MBA by a year. So I then went to business school and I had a few sort of, um, you know, I'd actually seen how hard it is to build a, you know, high impact um, and extremely high um viability business because Mm, you're trying to satisfy more than one sort of um you know objective you're not just trying to make money in a profitable manner but you're also trying to make you know first and foremost make sure that you are um impacting a sort of the demographic you work with and in this case it was based on learning outcomes uh, we were very committed to making this affordable and also um, guaranteeing learning outcomes. And that was very, actually, it's a very, very tough problem. And I think very few organizations in the world are truly able to impact it. Um, so I think I came into business school uh, with a couple of different hypotheses. Um, unlike a lot of the same advice you get, I didn't have a very clear game plan of what I wanted to do after. Um, I knew I wanted to do one stint at a large company. I wanted to find businesses where impact and, um, you know, revenue slash profitability were more synergistic and Mm. hence easier to do. Um, And, uh, you know, I think eventually also just look at how do you sort of innovate or disrupt in completely new ways. Because one of my takeaways from Avanti had been that whenever you're trying to do something new, we were trying to take a completely different pedagogical approach. Um, It's an apple battle. And so you have to sort of, um, you know, I wanted some space to step back and think about these things. Um, I was also sort of a non-conventional candidate at HBS, given my experience had been very much hands-on, very operation-focused, whereas a lot of my peers came from more consulting and finance backgrounds. So um, while they were very keen to pick up stuff, like, for example, most of my sort of class had rarely managed a team. Hmm. I had managed a 15, 20-member team by that time. But on the other hand, I couldn't, like, make a PowerPoint to save my life. Um, Or, you know, had never actually theoretically seen too many concepts because I was always uh, drinking from the fire hose, learning by doing. So um, business school was also a very good way for me to step back and process a lot of things and have some distance and, you know, learn and see how you can continue innovating and creating impact in a sort of very uh, viable, um, you know, business-led approach. Right. So that was, those, I had more hypotheses coming in versus a clear sort of outcome. And uh, I ended up spending the summer at at Amazon um, as large as it can possibly get. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, it was an amazing learning experience, but also that I, you know, also a validation that I actually enjoyed smaller setups, uh, which provide you a wider scope of sort of responsibilities slash problem statements more interesting. So, uh, you know, it actually made me want to go back to slightly, um, yeah, actually not even slightly, like significantly smaller entrepreneurial setups. Um, but at the same time, just had a very tremendous experience at Amazon, learned a lot of principles of, you know, the writing approach of writing six pages, you know, very much pressure testing your, um, you know, not drinking your own Kool-Aid and being very number driven, both in your hypotheses as well as in seeing if something's working or not. So great takeaways, but also personally realized that I wanted to be in uh, smaller, more entrepreneurial setups. Um, so I was in second year and I had this realization and epiphany that, oh, now I still, I realized I don't want to do the large company thing. Yeah. Uh, so let's see what we have to do. Um, not a very nice place to be in, um, <laughs> but uh, um, I kind of uh, stumbled into what would become my you know, full-time gig post B-School, which was working at this um, innovation consulting firm founded by a professor who I really looked up to at HBS called Clayton Christensen, who had done a lot of work on disruptive innovation. And um, InnoSight essentially took some of his theoretical foundation and worked with Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies about, uh, you know, advising the CEOs and, you know, the chief innovation officers, etc., on how do they keep their companies relevant, um, even as they're getting disrupted rapidly by technology, as well as startups who are becoming a real threat to their future viability. So, um, you know, it's quite interesting when I said I didn't want to do consulting. I honestly just love the job description that I saw on their on InnoSight's sort of career page. Right. And uh, eventually I was sold because I loved the interview process. And um, I do, you know, with your permission, would like to take a minute or so to just describe how, you know, you know interview processes can help identify mutual fits so well. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. And I'm sure you had, uh, you know, your interviewers um, included Clay Christensen, and I'm a big fan. I think uh, the last time we spoke, I did tell you that I've been reading his books. So I would love to, I yeah. think it's, it's, it's a great way for me and for everyone else to learn as well. Absolutely. So uh, Clay actually does not do interviews okay. uh, on a sort of, he's in a more advisory capacity with the business. He used to often show up at his you know office. He was often around at the office every sort of like week or so. Yeah. Uh, but I think what I found very interesting with the interview process and like one of my first interviewers is actually a very dear friend now. Um, what I liked was the interview was not trying to, um, you know, throw you a tough one or whatever. It was a great simulation of, um, you know, it's, it was a great simulation of what day-to-day -day life was. So, in a, in a side, it was often advising companies at very sort of open-ended and difficult questions of the very existence of their industry. Sure. So, what you talk to, uh, you know, so like my cases reflected that. They weren't like made-up scenarios. They literally were case statements out of, like, you know, here's this company which is, 
doing really well and it has like um you know 100 million you know some billion dollar top line doing well margin wise but its industry is completely shifting the regulatory environment has shifted the cars they produce may or may not even have a future five years down the road how would we approach them you know so like very real life very collaborative uh they had an on-site interview after a couple of rounds um actually you were supposed to solve one of the cases with your uh, fellow interviewees hmm. which i found fascinating because you were incentivized to collaborate with each other right. instead of being like competitive slash antagonistic yeah um which uh, <laughs> which was like very surprising like uh, are you serious you want us to like work together on this and um I remember by the time the on-site day was done I had gone from being someone who was like hey I'm just interviewing for the fun of this to uh, really being like oh I really want to do this I hope I land the job um and uh, so it was very fortunate to land it and um, I actually spent a year at Enosai this was on my OPT which is your um the visa extension that you get right. you know on your uh, student visa for a year you're allowed to work right in the US um and ended up doing a bunch of work around uh, healthcare life sciences and um it was phenomenal right it was a very unusual consulting firm it was a very collaborative and very creative environment yeah and um it was addressing some of the fundamental questions that faced large companies and in some ways sort of met my entrepreneurial leanings as well because you were fundamentally working with a large company and teaching them to innovate right wow that's great avilasha consulting with large companies and telling them how to innovate and when to innovate tell me is there a way that these companies can prepare themselves for a disruption in their industries yeah absolutely and i think a lot of this gets down to how secure and visionary the ceo and the c suite is hmm. because almost any industry you take today is going to get disrupted right uh or you know and it's going to fundamentally undergo a shift because the technology is evolving so rapidly the kind of changes that used to happen over decades are now happening over 3 or 4 years an example i worked a lot in healthcare and uh, you know uh, insurance was going a fundamental shift in the us uh, consumer healthcare right. was becoming very front and center you suddenly had healthcare completely accessible via digital devices etc so it's a given like today if there is any industry that thinks it's not going to be impacted it's that's putting your head in the sand and then it's a lot of right you know you suddenly think about it this way here is your core business which is doing so well for you generating great revenues and profits for you but you know that it's no longer going to be valid for the future mm. so you know the current uh, people running those businesses uh, would actually be threatened and now there are two approaches one is that you can put your head in the sand and just like you know pretend or try to thwart it or the second which of course my leaning is um, is that you know the most the best like the ceos who i have been able to learn most from are very aware and they actually want to um, literally keep up with it and say okay so what does this mean for us how can we use this to our advantage and uh, how do we uh, you know uh, innovate and keep up in this sphere and actually continue excelling for the future so one of the most fascinating takeaways i had is that often this innovation new business arm 
has to have a very dedicated reporting to the CEO and has to have a very direct sort of financial allocation coming from the top because otherwise the current business leaders are almost incentivized to thwart it because right. it's a threat to them. Yeah. Secondly, the first thing that's cut whenever there is financial stress is something forward-looking. And it's very tempting to say, oh, let's just like, you know, slash this forward-looking project, which is great in the short term. It's great for your quarterly earnings or like your, you know, six-month roadmap, but it's going to probably kill you five to ten years down the line. So it takes, a, you know, it takes leaders who are very comfortable with accepting evolution and embracing it and having a growth mindset uh, versus people who live in denial for it. And then, of course, it takes a lot of corporate governance to make sure that this is, you know, people are incentivized to um, innovate for the future. It takes a lot of, um, um, you know, realizing what are the strengths your company can continue playing on. So a hospital is not going to win by competing with Apple on Apple stuff, mm, but right. it can win by sort of leveraging what it has. Like for example, uh, only a hospital can offer you doctors who can make sense of probably your consumer health data. They probably aren't going to win if they try and, you know, compete to create an Apple watch or a Fitbit or whatever. So, um, you know, if just to summarize, it's like, do you have leaders who have a growth mindset and feel in you know inspired by the future trends or they do they feel threatened by it uh, second is can you have the corporate governance to protect this innovation work um, and third is can you really play to your strengths um, and combine that with future trends because if you try and copy it's very unlikely you'll succeed so do these companies have an innovation arm or a special projects arm? I ask this because, you know, CEOs are so absorbed in their own work. I'm wondering if they even have the time to do all this. Absolutely. I think most places have an innovation arm okay. these days. But I think uh, it depends on is this a placeholder? Is this something that you're right. doing just to, you know, uh, point, for the so. appearances? Yeah. Or do you really have a budget allocated for it? Does it truly have a leader who has the independence and the responsibilities to try new things? Uh, do you have metrics which measure it appropriately? For example, you can never measure your new innovations uh, purely just by revenue potential because in the beginning, they are going to have, you know, in the first year, they are not going to give you the revenue that you're core business does. So you have to see growth indicators versus just seeing the absolute numbers. So I think the ones that, um, so, you know, just to answer your question, I think these days most have it, but I don't actually think that a lot of them give uh, these arms, the protection, the metric system and the teeth to Mm. truly make a difference. The ones that do, of course, you know, reap very uh, good, um, dividends and they're able to establish a very synergistic relationship between their core business and this sort of innovation arm where can they can both benefit from each other uh but the ceo or someone very high has to be the mediator has to 
play this role because let's say if you're the head of the core business the incumbent business today and your you know your goal is as a hospital chain is to just deliver profits on your hospital model you will not even be incentivized to try and do different things so there's a you know you have to create two different very strong leaders uh, both reporting into the ceo who are incentivized to protect their own sort of um, uh you know goals and fine synergistic balances but i think more and more especially i think covid is uh, is taught this lesson like i was reading a meme somewhere that uh, covid has done more for the digitization projects of you know large companies than years and years of spend on digit digitization arms etc because you were forced to do it absolutely so i think to, in today's world it's just become more front and center but the ones that will succeed are people who will sort truly see the opportunity in it i think that is you know fundamental to everything and there should also be a potential for these companies and ceos to enable inorganic growth through mnas right so how do they take a decision oh absolutely i think it's both and i think in fact some of the work that a couple projects that i was involved in involved making this sort of framework of which is a build in house which is a sort of inorganic channel you know and usually you try and tend to build something in house which is in your wheelhouse and is of strategic importance and you might sort of go inorganic um sort of mne for a certain set of capabilities and one of the things i really enjoyed was for a very large company sort of scoping out what their mne opportunities could look like so i think it's always a combination of both um and you sort of figure out what strategically as well as financially works out and you usually have a mix of both of these things now let's talk about your role at elucidata what did your day to day look like so so i think i was at a very interesting juncture so like i mentioned i was at the end of one year you get i was at the end of my opt um i did not get my h1b lottery and honestly that was not a disappointment for me because i had intended to always move back to india so but i think the one threshold i was there at is i had gotten super excited about um you know some of the healthcare innovation related work that i was doing and at that time i had actually also got started um, elucidata had been uh, co-founded by a friend of mine from iit delhi as well as his co-founder who was based in boston which is where i lived um so in summary um you know elucidata was using um, you know, was using a data platform a data driven approach to enhance the entire drug development process um, for cures to different diseases um you know typically to deliver a new drug to the market it takes uh, pharma and biotech companies 10 to 15 years and 2 to 3 billion dollars of spend in research and you know in the last couple of decades just the data generation the different types of experimental data as well as um you know molecular data that had become available was huge like terabytes of data being generated by experimentation every day but the tools as well as the know how to um to actually keep up with that data was lagging behind and um Elucidata began as actually a computational biology consulting firm where there was an in-house team of data as data sort of engineers data scientists as well as 
more biology background people and they were working directly with pharma and biotech companies like Pfizer to sort of help um, you know make the process and the insight generation that these companies needed from data in the process the company had built an in-house tool which could you know which could in, by which you know call polyware uh, software could replace or make the lives of the end users more effective. And um, at the time that I was coming to the end of my time at InnoSight, um, the company had raised a seed round to go from being sort of a consulting bootstrapped company to also taking this data platform, uh, Poly, to the market independently. Um, to just go from being purely consulting and project-based to also having this uh, software solution offering as well. And um, I think so I joined as the VP of strategy and operations. And it was a fascinating time because, you know, this was a company which had been bootstrapped and doing very well as a project based consulting, you know, high deep tech consulting organization. And now they wanted to take a software to market. Um, so everything from like you know, helping the CEO hire the first VP of sales, um, developing the sales process, working directly with some of our high potential clients and like doing accounts management there, um, establishing strategic partnerships, um, which could help us both in India and the US, as well as building actually a lot of the in-house, um, you know, capabilities that a company needs. So you have to look at HR practices to say scale a business vertical, which supports a SaaS business, um, setting up customer success, account management, marketing. So it was a very uh, diverse sort of um, problem set. And uh, it was uh, very challenging because it was balancing just building up the bones of the business internally and then supporting the CEO and the CTO in building out the external um, sort of business, spent a lot of time working with our board of investors, with fundraising. So it was a very, very wide variety of things in a super unique space. And um, I spent, like I was there for about close to two years. And I think I spent, I continued doing US India for two years. So I used to, um, I think I, you know, I, I was, I used to always joke at that time that I live in the airport or I live uh, on long haul flights. And it was fascinating. But I think that was also the period where I realized that certain uh, lifestyle choices are also, you know, you it's hard to continue doing that for a very long time. Um, initially, when I had joined, we were very hopeful that uh, Asia would also be a very strong market. But, you know, honestly, one of the th takeaways that we had at the end of two years is that North America, hmm. or in fact, uh, Boston will continue to be the hub oh. of most of pharma and biotech just by sheer scale Absolutely. for the next, like, at least decade or so. And um, while we did some sort of interesting sort of pilots um, in Asia, nothing to compete with the market that was offered by North America. And as a startup, you have to be very disciplined and decide that, you know, you have limited time, energy and resources, and you have to be very channelized. So uh, we were going to be US focused um, market. And for me personally, as someone who wanted to live in India, um, 
I, you know, it was very difficult to sort of continue uh, doing, uh, working in a space which which was not truly going to come to Asia for at least the next five to 10 years. It's, um, it's you know, and it was a very tough call because it's a very interesting space, but I do know that I wanted to definitely be Asia-based. And uh, this was a very difficult situation um, where, you know, uh, to decide that long-term, this these two paths weren't aligned. The business's focus was going to be North America and my own personal bias was to be in Asia. Well, it must have been such a crazy learning journey to enter a company while it's uh, undergoing a transition. So, you know, one thing I really like about startups is how quickly they can pivot. However, I have also realized that the level and the ultimate success of pivot actually is dependent on the team and how the team executes everything. And a large part of how the team also executes is based on the processes that have been built, right? And uh, while you were going through that transition from a consulting company to a full-blown product company, what were some processes that you were changing or how did everything work in the back end? Absolutely. So I think I think I, I'll sort of take the two most prime examples. One was external facing and one was internal facing. So um, by external facing, I mean, so far, it had been very CEO driven sales, like, right. you know, uh, and it was based on the CEO was a very, very strong scientist who was uh, driving a lot of the sales and a lot of the consulting relationships were driven as a result of his own uh, prior experience as well as connections with those people. And uh, this was, of course, um, you know, of course, even as we move to a more software-driven model, CEO was going to play an important role. But at the same time, now it needed to become a more repeatable process. So it meant from, you know, setting up the whole architecture, from having a VP of sales to having a sales structure, um, then having B2B content, you know, marketing to support the top of the funnel, um, having a sales, very strong sales process to sort of um, run pilots, close accounts, um, and finally to actually service those accounts. You had to have a customer support set up. You had to have an account management set up, which was trying to make sure that the customers were succeeding with the software, but also you were sort of expanding the number of uh, teams that were using the software, scaling it up with them Um so it went from being a more uh, relationship-driven, very people-entrenched model to having all of these touch points of generation of leads, conversion of leads, and then you know ensuring the success and growth of that client relationship uh, in you know with the software being the fundamental um, sort of foundational base. And you know if you ever work in B two B software, you also have to think about how can your software work with limited um, sort of customization? How can it meet the needs of a wide variety of clients? Because when you do consulting, you can actually uh, give a very customized solution or approach to each client. Right. Whereas software, if you're trying to, you want to give flexibility, of course, but if you're trying to rejig the software with a lot of effort for each client, you know, you're not really going to scale. Um, how do you 
create the right level of modularization to make sure you can still give flexibility without you know being forced to reinvent the wheel each time so tell me from the last time we spoke i remember you mentioned that elucidata sort of became like a platform as a service very similar to netflix and then uh, you are also saying that you need to make sure that the solution is not as customized for customers as uh, one would imagine so how does one really strike the right balance right absolutely so i think some amount of customization is always needed but let's say if you can do it in a week or so that's great the reason it became a platform as a service was because these uh, you know in house teams also had computational biologists and data scientists and they sometimes knew the best thing that was most suitable for their company so when you start providing them a platform as a service you actually give them a lot of the tools to do the customization at their end hmm. so you're going one layer less you know more right. abstract and giving more flexibility to the end user and that's great because you know everyone's happy but then you have to de- deliver the value proposition at the platform layer so it's actually always a balancing act you want to give the customer as much flexibility as is useful but you don't want to have to have your team your software development or scientist team have to build a completely new product each time around which is why um a lot of the sort of industries that require specific customization move towards being platforms as a service or infrastructure as a service like aws is a great sort of example where aws has lots of offerings that companies can you know configure on their own very easily um so if you know if aws was trying to give exactly the end output to everyone it would have to reinvent the wheel each time so i'm you know trying to make it very simplistic this is not a apples to apples comparison but it is meant to give an example of how you sort of make sure the customization is possible but can be doable at the client's end versus having to have the team redo it because then you'll probably be spending 6 months or so trying to onboard that client um so you move on a lot of the customization a flexibility to the end user and that you know helps scale etc and uh, but that's not easy at all so it's a very fascinating b2b software is a very fascinating space of balancing these two contradictory pools of um, you know making enough flexibility without giving doing new you know without like building a new software from scratch each time so um that was a you know that was like you were asking the question of processes was like trying to like you know turn this organization towards that focus and internally honestly i got a full crash course in you know how do you set up an hr function which will help scale from being like a 20 30 person organization to being a 100 person organization how do you scale your finance and accounting functions to support an india us business um you know you bring in you go from uh, you know elevating your sort of the ca who works with you the lawyers who work with you so there is a lot of um, it's a very interesting stage when you're going from you know 1 to 10 instead after 0 to 1 and when that 1 to 10 is a pivot away from 0 to 1 hmm. so uh, right. fast very sort of interesting set of learnings for me and just about how important processes become to sort of facilitating that switch of course like you said the critical core still remains the people 
Absolutely. And I think one thing that uh, startup founders probably do not touch upon is uh, the importance of finances. You know, where I'm coming from is my own experience at Andme where, uh, um, you know, we realized during the pandemic how important it is to make sure that your finances are sustainable and that you are cash rich. So um, from my last conversation with you, I remember that you were looking at the finances of uh, Elucidata as well. So when would you suggest is the best time for a company to start looking for a proper finance team or a proper finance uh, or financial operations? I think uh, what matters a lot and I think, you know, uh, for example, is like you often don't bring the team in-house. You often work with very good agencies um, okay. and you have like, you know, CA firms, you have sort of um, uh, you have law legal firms and they had to do a lot of legal work because contracts were contracts and ip were sort of uh, very important from us from the early stages right. so i think we had the legal aspect done very upfront because this war we worked in a sector where this was very critical hmm. um i think we did have a decent like when i joined it was an okay setup when it came to accounting and finances um but um, as the company was scaling and you know you also have to think about um, billing even stuff like billing consulting and software differently they are treated you know whether you do you treat it as an asset do you treat it as you know what's an asset what's an expense how do you amortize things all of those things become very important and I think when you're a US India company if I can give one piece of advice is like please have a CA who understands this really well mm, um, right. because there are all kinds of, um, you know, nuances to this. Uh, so I think huge takeaways there. In the legal, we were very solid even to begin with and it paid rich dividends in the years afterwards. I think uh, on the CA front initially, it was it was like, it, it, I mean, I did have to spend a decent amount of time when I had joined, um, but I think it's very useful because... These are, you know, in the early days, it, these might seem like an overhead, but um, they can really provide a lot of visibility. And I think, like you said, the pandemic was a huge crucible for most companies. And even for us, it was great that we had a very strong CA on board uh, before, uh, you know, before the pandemic, because then you really knew the levers you could use to ensure profitability, to ensure, you know, extend your runway, because you had a very clear clear line of sight of all the moving pieces. So um, it, it's a, it's not an easy game because you don't want to make it over complex to begin with. But I think the, you know, what I've seen is that if you, if you partner with useful, you know, very solid um, legal firms, if your industry is IP dependent and sort of CA, accounting finance firms, instead of having that in-house, that can be a very mutual win-win relationship. And uh, one of the more interesting things I've seen in startups today is that there are a lot of large firms who are also willing to make, you know, law firms as well as financial accounting firms, etc., who, who are interested in even doing some sort of their uh, payments in equity because they also see the upside so that the, you know, the, the, the numbers work out for both parties. So I think that is more and more as the number of startups are scaling more and more large sort of large legal firms as well as 
CAs, et cetera, want to be able to have a sort of payment mechanism that works for both parties. So yeah, I would highly advise it because yeah. you know, it helps. It helps have the levers to, um, you know, uh, that you know that you can play with while running the business. Yeah, I love the fact that you mentioned how incentives, um, incentive structure is also changing. And very interestingly, one of my cousins, he works for... Uh, Ernst and Young and he he's a CA himself and he was uh, just asking me about startups in general because you know they are they are yeah. getting so inquisitive they are like Ki yaar, kya kar sakte? you know we've always dealt with big firms and now we don't know because then other CA like the smaller CAs who probably don't work um, in in one of these big fours uh, will will probably take the business away so they are they are so inquisitive it's funny yeah, it's a very positive shift that I've seen happen in the last four or five years. Like, I know a lot of very large, like, I have friends who work in very large law firms and they're like, hey, can you like help us with <laughs> acquire startup space? And I'm like, dude, they can't pay or, you know, they won't be able to pay even a week's uh, thing. And they're like, no, we'll like do an equity deal or something. And I was like, it's very, it's a mutual win-win, right? That's yeah. because the ecosystem has reached, reached, reached a stage of maturity where um, partnerships can you know, sort of protect both upside and downsides. Absolutely. So uh, very interesting space these days. Yeah. And then I think, um, you know, I'd love for you to talk more about uh, your role at Hike. And um, I know you, you know, you you sort of, uh, uh, I think, gained a lot of operational expertise. Uh, you had gained a lot of ex- uh, operational expertise as part of your um, time at Lucidata, Vanti, and InnoSight really gave you um, an idea on the uh, corporate side. So what were, and I think chief of staff is really like a mix of everything, right? So how yeah. did you, and I'm sure you made great relationships across all three uh, companies that you worked at, but how did you sort of, um, first of all, what was your role like? And how did you manage your relationships with uh, the different teams that you may have worked with uh, within Hayek and also uh, the founder, right? Because uh, looks like chief of staff usually reports to the founder. Uh, but how, how did you manage that? And um, how did you drive all of them towards a common vision um, or outcome? There are many questions, but you can go one by one. So, yeah, I was yeah. just going to... Um, so, I think first, uh, I, I want to also just like begin by how I got to hike. So, yeah. I have been... Um, you know, in the U.S. for three years. And then with the Lucidata, I would call myself more in the U.S. than in India. So effectively, between 2015 to 2020, I had by and large been in the U.S. And as someone who was so fascinated with disruption, I think I had missed the biggest disruption of them all, which was uh, in India, which was, you know, coming of reliance and the coming of data, high-speed data becoming so cheap in this country. Um, So before I went to the US, when I worked at Avanti, I knew of a time where 2G and LTE were issues where like the moment you stepped out of Delhi, you weren't getting internet. (laughs) And it was very expensive and like smartphones were very, you know, very expensive. And suddenly by the time I had moved back, everything had changed. Like we were, you know, data was far cheaper and far better than the data I had in Boston. Um, It was, uh, you know, phones had become, you had had all of these uh, Xiaomi, you had a lot of these sort of phones, which meant like, you know, a wide sort of prevalence of phones. And that's when I'd been reading about Hike, about how they'd been building a super app and a lot of the super apps thesis, which is like, providing you a lot of um, 
uh, you know, all your services on one app because you, your phone just doesn't have the memory for more apps. Uh, just a lot of its growth had been driven by talk time rewards, which no longer was as relevant post coming of Geo. So it was very fascinating. It was a very great example of how quickly evolutions can happen mm-hmm. and also uh, sort of um, uh, how companies have to evolve. So Hike had to go from building a super app towards, you know, eventually now the fake focus is much more on, uh, there were five or six different bets. uh, uh, And the one that was actually eventually doing really well was Rush, which was in the gaming space, which is in the gaming space. And now, you know, the company's doing very interesting stuff around crypto-based gaming, play to earn, etc. So that's just the... Uh, thesis of why I was very intrigued to do this because I had missed the whole disruption in India Mm, Um, you know just because of my personal and professional choices Um, chief of staff was a very interesting role um, because it in many ways I think you summed it very well everything that I had done before that was like a preparation for it Um, so let me sort of tackle your questions one by one Um, I think uh, your first relationship, so yes, in my case, uh, I, I was the chief of the staff, chief of staff to the CEO. So I think your first thing is that you have to um, really, your job is to help the CEO as well as the leadership team succeed. Um, and it's a service role. And you have to be very aware that it's a service role um, in that sense. And um, I think uh, one was that you have to know very well what, how the CEO operates and how you want, uh, what is his vision in this case, his vision for the company. So I think uh, for me, it was fortunate because um, CEO was a, you know, Coven's a very self-aware person who was, and you, you know, he was very sort of transparent in his working style and how he wanted the company to operate. And uh, so that self-awareness, so if you ever want to for work as a chief of staff or hire a chief of staff, I think that relationship is very much uh, built on, um, you know, being very, being very self-aware and transparent about working dynamics, both of how, the, you know, that dynamic is supposed to work and how the leadership team needs to work. Um, so that was one. Um, the second is, I think initially your role is really an information assimilator and, you know, you bring a lot of processes and structure to it. So you sort of make sure that the whole thing runs, the whole system works in a very smooth manner. Like meetings are very high quality, um, con- data is useful for making decisions. Everyone's very prepped and you're just like establishing and scaling these systems. And after like a six odd months, you also get to a point where you might be advising um, or providing inputs because you have a very sort of um, bird's eye view to what's happening everywhere. Um, You often jump in to also take on the, you know, the function or that might be facing the biggest challenge. So you sort of work with engineering leads, you work with the data teams, you work with the product teams, you work with the, um, you know, um, marketing teams, the um, people teams, uh, wherever, whatever is needed. So that's sort of the second, uh, you know, phases of what the relationship looks like or the role mandate looks like. And the third, and I think most interesting is the relationship with the uh, broader leadership team because you're often accountable for making sure that 
their outputs to the ceo are effective but at the same time you don't they don't report to you hmm. in fact in my case most of the time they were significantly more experienced and they knew their functions far better than i did yeah. so it's a very interesting place where you have to be able to form um you know give them systems um, that help them scale uh get them to a point where you're like yeah I- i'll help you um, present this information to the ceo in an effective manner i will make it very clear to you what he expects so each leader you have to establish an independent relationship with and they have to get to trust you right. because you can't just use the stick each time and say oh no no the ceo needs it and so you're going to crack the you know you're constantly going to use that that's helpful but eventually people will only be able to make the system work if you have very positive relationships working relationships with each leader um who and also realize that you you don't know their function better than uh them in fact what you bring is a very independent interesting sort of generalist perspective so abilasha i have a follow up question as a chief of staff you work across different verticals and each of these verticals have a team lead so how do you sort of build that trust with that team lead right since you have to work across verticals and make sure that the goals of an organization are fulfilled and i'll tell you where i'm coming from so when i was at anme i was the chief of staff and uh, you know i was working with this operations head who had 10 to 15 years of experience doing the same thing that he was doing over and over again right and uh, here i was you know 3 or 4 years of work experience trying to build out things from scratch no experience in operations whatsoever so i obviously you know in the first two months really struggled to build that level of trust that was required for me to sort of work with them consistently how did you do it yeah i think a lot of it was i, I think it's also you have to gain one you have to you know show up as generally smart because sometimes mm, right. when uh, when lead when somebody's running a deep function you are they they are very good at what they do no but they probably don't know what's happening in the other function so you are often able to piece the information gaps that exist in an organization right uh second you truly have to show up and prove that you um that you are in it to help them succeed mm-hmm. right let's say there's something between a cross functional project that's just not moving uh your situation often gives you the vantage point to make it work because you find, you know you will you will find it much easier to bring those two or three functions together mm-hmm. than that individual leader and i think third you have to have a learning mindset right. you have to walk into the conversation saying hey i don't know i don't know ai better than you but maybe i can help you uh, figure out where this fits into the product's roadmap maybe this is the this is we are blocked with resources maybe i can help unblock that for you maybe i can help build systems that give more efficiency for your teams and deliver outputs more aligned with the ceo's vision So like I said I think for me the key takeaway was this is a service role. Right. Um and if you approach it with that learning mindset and that enabling mindset I think that helps that helps that goes a long way. Right. Um and now that you say that chief of staff is a services role so what is the sweet spot between services and carrying out day to day operations for a chief of staff role? 
So uh, I think, uh, so when I mean service role, I actually more mean about how you approach it, which means you are in it not to make yourself succeed, but uh, you are in it to make the team succeed. Um, In terms of the sort of balance between strategy and operations, I think it really is a question of what does the team need. So now Abhilasha, just doing a deep dive into your journey and how that has shaped you. So you started your journey with Avanti, which is into education and it has a very different level of impact altogether versus now you are leading product at Open Secret. So how has your relationship with impact and even risk, I feel, because you mentioned you were a very risk averse person in the beginning of your career. So how has your relationship with impact and risk changed over the years? Yeah, so I think uh, impact for me, and, and just like, you know, Avanti, while it's had a very strong nonprofit arm, I actually worked with a for-profit arm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a hybrid model. Right. Um, for me, impact is, I, I don't, I have a much wider definition of impact than most people. And for me, it's fundamentally a question of does this make the world better place in the vague way that I define, you know, better. Um, I have since B-School been more and more attracted to places where there's a win-win. Like, um, you know, where uh, this makes business sense and this is, you know, this is somehow making the world a better place. So I think impact is at the core of what I choose to do. I'm also very mindful that my definition of impact is not the same as a very strict practitioner's definition of impact. And I know this is a very uh, heated topic, so I don't even try and defend it because it has to make sense to me. Uh, What I have done is not like solving hunger in some country. That's just not, I will never even like have the sort of, um, you know, disconnectedness to say that. But I know that my choices are always driven by impact in the way it makes sense to me. Um, Second, I've been a huge believer of impact is not just the space. It's also the uh, systems you build. It's also the um, people you manage or mentor. Um, Like I've loved, I managed and managed in teams very early and I love that part of most of my roles. Um, so impact in business for me is a win-win. I'm always trying to see if the twain can meet. Um, um, yeah, and it, I, it may have meant that I have gone away from the traditional definition of impact, but I constantly seek it. And uh, I try and channelize it in um, the way that make, it makes sense. For me. Now, Abhilasha, I have a question that you are the best position amongst all our women who build guests to answer. You've worked across different sectors and different roles, but usually people say that, you know, you should have a goal in mind and you should do anything and everything in your power to get to that goal. But I am a personal believer of following your curiosity. I really like how you've also sort of done that. How has your experience over the years really moved your thinking or shaped your thinking? Yeah, I think uh, what I've learned is for me, uh, the people I work with matter more, mm. like are probably the highest uh, sort of in my stack ranking of how I make decisions. And uh, it's majority of the times, um, you know, reaped very positive rewards for me. So that's number one. 
Um, I think number two has been that over the years, I've enjoyed working with people who push me out of my comfort zone. Um, like, I'm a very different person today, both in terms of like risk aversion, managing ambiguity, or um, even trusting what I can achieve uh, because mm -hmm. of people who pushed me out of my comfort zone. And um, I think number three is uh, self-awareness. I think you have to learn to know your own strengths and weaknesses and always try and get your weaknesses to table stakes and then to really leverage your strengths. Eventually, people will remember you for your strengths because that's where you bring the value add. Hmm. Um, so I make sure I carve time out for that. Um, in a very, very systematic fashion. Another thing that I, which I, helps a lot is I, whenever I start working with somebody new, especially somebody on my team, I write a working with me guide, which oh, wow. highlights the good, bad and ugly, <laughs> either verbally or like, you know, actually written. Yeah. And that helps me do introspection of like things that I've gotten better at, things that I've gotten worse at, things that I need to repair. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I think keeping oneself accountable, we often rely on our bosses or managers or supervisors to keep one accountable. Right. But I think your team and you can also keep yourself accountable. And like I had a mentor who had this very like effective working with me, you know, guides where he sort of really listed out his strengths, his weaknesses, his quirks. And um, I try and follow that where I do call out, like, I'm like, hey, this is something you're going to find hard to work with me. I'm trying to improve, but let's just, like, let it be where it is. So uh, self-awareness matters a lot. I think the biggest takeaway for me is I've always had the fortune and sometimes even challenge of working with people who push you out of your comfort zone. Hmm. And yeah. you don't always like it. Yeah. But I think it's made me a better professional and, um, you know, I probably even a better person. Uh, so it's made me go from having a fixed mindset of like, you can, you know, you can only do this if you're good at it to being somebody who believes that you can become better at things. You can sort of learn and grow and evolve. So, um, yeah, I think it's changed a lot. And I think, um, uh, yeah, I think it's like, I've also realized that, uh, following the cliche usually doesn't work for me so yeah. i've stopped trying to do that and i just enjoy what i'm doing nowadays so how do you build the self-awareness you mentioned that you specifically carve out some time to work on it what do you do in this time yeah absolutely so i think uh, you know uh, i i try and do these sort of uh, touch points with people at work and even personally I also uh, I journal so I'm okay. a very uh, I'm an avid journaler I sort of like do it at least five four or five times a week and writing for me is a very strong channel of accountability hmm. and then I also at time from time to time on a need basis worked with professionals right. so I've worked with um, therapists uh, for personal goals. I've worked with uh, sort of uh, career coaches for professional goals. Um, and that also helps, you know, uh, engender and deepen accountability and self-awareness. So, um, so that's there. And I think the fourth, which I missed is I also have a very, uh, you very, very uh, enriching circle of friends and mentors 
help with that accountability right. like i can think of three to four people who know how to call my bullshit mm-hmm. uh and that helps yeah, a lot because absolutely. they keep you honest yeah abilasha do you think spirituality and success in business are connected that's a great question i think about it a lot i think uh uh what my own conclusion has been is that you you can only chase your wildest dreams if you have a strong foundation hmm. um and i see uh uh spirituality as one of those pillars of that foundation hmm. uh and for me spirituality is a belief in a wider higher power yeah. um so i read uh very wide sort of religious perspectives on philosophy i'm not right. religious i'm agnostic yeah. but i've read a lot uh i am very uh, for me spirituality also comes from nature hmm. so um ergo i was spending you know even at sundar nursery where i was this morning yeah. i was uh, at the remotest parts when nobody else was there because yeah. i love being in nature yeah um and were you also alone have... i do that <laughs> because i i do exactly yeah, this time yeah I, oh i'm a solo traveler i have literally oh, traveled me all over the world alone Yeah absolutely and i think just closing her out i think for me foundation pillars include some version of spirituality some version of community hmm. which includes yeah. like friends family uh, mentors uh, and also some like some even professional help as needed like you know i'm hmm. very open about the fact that i worked with therapists and psychiatrists and career coaches as need be um and um, it's and also i think the last foundation which i'm discovering now and i'm trying to strengthen is fun mm-hmm. like you have yeah. to have a pillar of fun in your life absolutely um so i used i was a trained classical dancer as a child but gave it up many years Me back too. now which, i've just which dance yeah, you learn, which a, form of dance i am a bharatanatyam dancer so i was trained in odissi and kathak okay. um wow. but I just gave it. I mean, I sort of gave it up, and now I, I mean, I've never found time to go back to a very measured practice. But I just like do some variant of like classical and my own contemporary, whatever feels nice to me. It doesn't have to be good. It's just fun. Yeah. And like um, shows which make me laugh or think or podcasts or like um, music um, and travel, of course. So. I think that's the fourth foundation which you tend to forget from time to time that life has to be fun on a daily basis. Yeah. Um so yeah, I think that's really important that uh, you have to chase the um things that just make you smile and give you joy on a day-to-day basis. Um so yeah, spirituality is definitely a part of it along with all of these different things. Yeah absolutely I think uh, it's very important to have fun on a day to day basis otherwise it just gets very monotonous I think one thing that we haven't talked about in the show at all is uh, coaching and I know you took uh, coaching during your career moves and uh, in general so how does one really think about coaching I think uh, whenever it feels instinctually right to you um usually before a crisis helps uh <laughs> i know the first time i saw a therapist was at you know the depths of a crisis uh since then i've learned my lesson and i try and avoid reaching a point of crisis before getting professional help yeah. um but yeah i i work with them in like sprints if you will like i'd spend 6 months or so i worked with a therapist for 3 or 4 years 
but I haven't, you know, after a point we weaned off and, but I, I literally was just making note. I was like, hmm, this is a project I might want to work with her again because this is some, these are some questions I want to solve for myself. Uh, with a career coach, I've worked for six odd months. I think most people, including me, usually go to a professional when they are at the depths of a crisis. Yeah. Um, but once you've seen the benefit of it, you should probably do it preemptively when you're not in a crisis. Mm. Uh, it helps. Like recently, I was just thinking about something. And I was like, yeah, this might be a good time to sort of start doing a few sessions, even though I'm not in any crisis mode right now. Thank you, Abhilasha. It was great chatting with you and getting to know your journey. Thanks for taking the time. But this was an amazing conversation. I didn't even realize that it's, we've been like chatting for uh, an over an hour and like, you know, really, um, you know, very uh, inspired by what you're doing with women who build and glad I could be a small part of it. Mm-hmm.